heart rate variability has really come to the forefront in the last, I'm going to say 40 years as being the most important biomarker for tracking health and recovery on a regular basis. And not just health and recovery, but resilience. So what heart rate variability correlates with is having good resilience, good ability to bounce back from stress, meaning that when the stress or the threat is gone, our bodies very quickly decrease their heart rate, decrease their blood pressure, decrease their breath rate, decrease their sweat, and increase reproductive activity, increase digestion, rest, recovery, so that because we recognize that we're safe and we do that quickly because we recognize the threat's gone. And people who have PTSD, depression, anxiety, chronic pain, um, a number of other conditions, many of these folks, uh, it's now been well documented, these people have low heart rate variability and amongst the lowest that we see in clinical settings. Hello, hello. Welcome back, Neurohacker community. This is episode number 68 of our podcast, and we have Dr. David Robin on the show. Dr. Robin is the co-founder of Apollo Neuro with a wearable device designed to relieve stress and he's currently helping to organize the world's largest controlled study of psychedelic medicines. The conversation today is all about the science-backed strategies to reduce stress in your life. For details on this episode, go to neurohacker.com podcast. You'll get a summary of our show, the full transcript, and can join in the conversation in the comments. Without further ado, let's jump right in. Here's Dr. Heather Sanderson and Dr. Dave Robin. Welcome to Collective Insights. I'm your host today, Dr. Heather Sanderson, and I am joined by Dr. Dave Robin. Thanks so much for coming to join us today. Thanks so much for having me, Heather. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. So you you study a lot about stress and anxiety and the effect that that has on the human condition. Um, can you tell us, can you just break down the parasympathetic versus sympathetic response to trauma and stress and what that looks like in the human body? Absolutely. Uh, I think if we were to understand any one thing about stress and the way that we respond to it, that's the best place to start. Um, because these systems that you mentioned, the parasympathetic system, which is a, the technical medical term for the uh, recovery nervous system, which is triggered by safety, is responsible for managing all the things that our bodies do when we're feeling safe and when we're in a position to um, not necessarily be concerned about survival. So the things that are activated when we feel safe are reproduction, digestion, creativity, sleep, energy recovery, um, immunity, very important right now, um, and all of the things that our bodies do to restore themselves. Um, so that when a threat comes, we are and have the best chances of getting out of that situation and surviving. Um, that system, that whole system we just talked about, the parasympathetic system, is literally triggered by safety. So anything that is a safety safety stimulus or something that makes us feel safe in any way will start to turn on that system of creativity, reproduction, energy recovery, etc. And that's really, really, really important because that's how our bodies maintain balance and maintain a sense of um, a, a sense of feeling well and of performing well and feeling rested and all these things that we value in our day-to-day lives. Um, at the same time, we have the sympathetic system, which is equally important, um, and it's responsible for maintaining our survival. So it's triggered or turned on by threat. That could be threat that we perceive from our environment like our kids screaming or emails or uh, traffic, or it could be actual threat, 
which is something that literally actually is threatening to our survival. So lack of food, lack of air, lack of water, lack of shelter, um, uh, a presence of a predator, um, things of that nature. Uh, what happens in chronic stress is that the sympathetic nervous system is turned on all the time. And that is fine in a short-term stress where we need to get away from a saber-toothed tiger or we need to find water. You want all of your energy, all of our energy, to go to our skeletal muscles and our heart and to our brains um, and to energy conservation mode where we're using energy as little as possible and as effectively as possible to get us to a survival situation. Um, the problem is that when we perceive threat all the time, and what happens is our our sympathetic fight or flight system gets all the energy and all the resources, and then those resources end up not going back to the recovery system, which is critical for regenerating and and rejuvenating us and bringing us back to a full a full sort of repleted um, rested state. So it you know part of when we talk about managing stress is not just about improving one or or the other nervous system it's really about achieving balance between the two an appropriate response to the situation at hand right so a measured response so it's a response that is you know not necessarily the first response it's not necessarily the last response but it's something in the middle where we something happens and we take a moment to reflect in that moment is this something that is actually threatening my survival right now is this threatening my physical survival my physical safety is it threatening my um you know list off the other kinds of safety right emotional safety mental safety um even financial and legal safety are things to consider these days that affect us and that we don't often consider and that if something is an actual threat to our safety in that moment then it does actually warrant a turning on of that fight or flight response and that's really important to take energy away from digestion reproduction because you don't want to be worried about doing those things when you're running from a lion um, that said we're rarely running from lions these days and so um, it's very important for us to make sure that when our body which doesn't know the difference between a lion and traffic we recognize and remind our bodies by doing things like deep breathing soothing touch meditation yoga exercise all the things that sort of help to remind our, us that we're safe and that we're able to enter a recovery state um, those activities help to rebalance the nervous system by reminding us that we are not actually under threat right now because we're safe enough to focus on those activities and that over time helps balance the nervous system, helps us to cope with stress in a healthier way. So can we learn to be more stressed or to be more relaxed? You know, there are people that I see certainly as a clinician, I'll see patients who are maybe going through very similar stressful experiences, going through a divorce or losing a loved one. Um, and one of them sort of not necessarily thrives through it, but definitely takes it in stride and it doesn't seem to affect them as deeply as another person. So what's the difference between those two people? Maybe going through a similar stressful experience, but having very different responses. Right. Yeah. And that's a great observation. That's actually something that seeing what you just described and these differences in people and differences between the way that I personally cope with stress and the way people around me cope with stress really drove me to try to understand this pathway better and to understand, um, you know, why do these differences exist between us? And there's a couple different reasons. Um, I think as you were saying, or as you alluded to earlier, there is a practice makes perfect 
pathway. And that's the fundamental way that the nervous system works. And this was actually discovered by, um, amongst others, Eric Kandel, who won the Nobel Prize in 2002 for discovering how um, we actually form memories in the brain. And it turns out that the way that we form memories in the brain is actually no different than the way that, or very minimally different than the way that 300 million year old sea snails form memories, which only have three neurons. And so we don't actually necessarily need to have all of this complex brain stuff going on to understand how we remember and how we form um, meaning from our environment. Um, what's interesting is that even these ancient sea snails and actually all animals in between have the ability to recognize what is threat to their survival and what is safe. And then that trains the nervous system over time to strengthen pathways down a line of threat if they're surrounded by threatening things all the time to train to respond to threat more more effectively, but also more frequently and to be more sensitive to threatening stimuli, which is kind of what we see in adults or children um, with PTSD. And then there's also the opposite, which is training to respond to positive stimuli. So the more that we train ourselves to... Um, to to practice positive coping strategies as an example one of the ones that i use the most that i find is most effective for myself and for my clients is the practice of gratitude um and that when we feel bad sad angry frustrated annoyed part of what makes those feeling so uncomfortable is not just feeling it it's feeling ashamed at the same time for feeling those feelings so if we accept that those feelings are there for a reason and that they're telling us something that we're supposed to be doing in that moment to resolve that feeling or get to the bottom of it so we don't feel that way anymore, then that is a much more resilient way of coping and a way that leads to recovery and growth more effectively than shaming ourselves or feeling guilty about feeling that feeling. If we feel guilty or shameful about being angry, then what happens is we turn the anger inward on ourselves. We turn the guilt, we turn the negative feelings, the sadness inward on ourselves. And then that results in this constant chronic stress response that we carry with us, which we effectively, in some ways, are practicing creating. And the more we practice it, the stronger the neural networks form around those feelings of shame and guilt and anger towards ourselves, but also anger towards others in our lives. And the anger never really subsides, it just continues or grows. So the alternative for that would be um, a thought strategy like, I feel angry. So you acknowledge the anger and you say, okay, I feel angry right now. Um, we can say, why me? Why am I angry? Why is this happening? Right? That's the, the old path. And then the, the alternative would be saying something like, I'm grateful for feeling angry right now because this anger is trying to tell me something about what's going on right now in my life that I need to address. And then that opportunity becomes instead an opportunity for shaming yourself or feeling guilty about the emotion. It becomes an opportunity to learn from the emotion and to, and to grow from it. And then we become stronger as we understand how to self-manage those feelings more effectively on a path of growth rather than a path of self-shaming or self-guilt or self-sabotage. Or There's lots of ways to describe it, but I think we see this all the time with our clients. Um, and it's something that we constantly work with them to try to overcome. And it's something that we can all overcome. That's the, the hope of this is that, you know, and I think what Eric Kandel really showed is that any of us can train our brains and our bodies to overcome stress, to overcome trauma, and to, and to really rebalance ourselves in an effective way. But we have to believe that we can do it 
and then we have to use the tools that we have available to us, including our, our colleagues and our friends, our resources, our personal thought resources, ourselves. We have to use all our breath. We have to you know, start to use all those things and practice those things. And over time, we learn to cope more effectively. Um, Apollo being a tool that can help assist with that for people who are struggling. So we're talking about, you know, sort of what people can do, the personal responsibility or the personal ability, I would say, um, it is very hopeful, right? There's this ability to change the course of your life or the way that you think through these um, maybe past episodes of trauma. But also I've heard you talk about inherited trauma or how maybe our our ancestors and, and what they experienced might be affecting our DNA or the way that we might experience the world um, without sort our having to have it experience trauma in our lives or even having had those habitual thought patterns, like even having them be created yet, right? Like we could have just come into the world and have some degree of PTSD. Is that right? Did I understand that correctly when I heard you speak about that? So I think what, what we're talking about is a predisposition. So a predisposition is not a guarantee. It's a increased likelihood of experiencing symptoms of a particular kind. And in the case of what we're talking about, trauma, um, one of the ways that those symptoms are experienced is PTSD, um, which is like hypervigilance, never feeling safe, always kind of looking around and not feeling like comfortable in your own skin or in your own environment, nightmares, flashbacks, um, things of that nature, insomnia, that, that leads to and is often frequently accompanied by low mood, chronic pain, um, all of these other things that kind of go along with that poor focus and attention, the most poor emotion regulation, etc. Um, so I think what, what, we're just, what we're describing is a pattern of behavior that is a coping strategy that sometimes we are taught and other times it's it's really a combination of the genetic makeup or the and the epigenetic makeup what it seems that the data is showing now for those who don't know is that epigenetic which it means on the dna it's the markings on the dna that tell skin cells to be skin and brain cells to be brain even though these cells all have the same code in them they act differently and so epigenetics help us to determine, uh, help the cells to determine what the functioning of them is and how to express certain stress response proteins at different times, reward response proteins. And so the epigenetic inherited stress predisposition that you're alluding to is something that there's been an enormous amount of evidence for over the last several, or I would say probably like three or four decades that has shown that, um, or at least very, very strongly suggested that if we are traumatized or are, um, or one member of a family is traumatized and that member of a family has children and has and they have grandchildren and that trauma has never been resolved or processed in any way therapeutically to um, resolve it then the patterns that inc that affect the expression of stress and reward response genes one example being cortisol which we're all familiar with a very powerful stress management um, hormone is are changed the expression patterns of those those hormones are changed over the generations which make it more likely that if our children if we were traumatized and we didn't deal with our trauma and then our children are exposed to stress they are more likely to wind up 
coping with that stress in a way that leads to an increased risk of PTSD, depression, anxiety, maybe hoarding, maybe metabolic disorder and diabetes and obesity also fall into this category. And so it's not a guarantee by any means. The genetics and the epigenetics are not a guarantee. But what I think the epigenetics show is hope that we actually, it confirms the scientific basis for hope that we can ratify and modify the way that we are, that there's no permanent, that it's almost never the case there's permanent imbalances from what we can tell of hormones or, or neurotransmitters in our brains. Even when we're feeling our worst ever, that is only typically a reflection of that state in that moment. And that if we are to engage in positive coping strategies or to change the way that we think about ourselves and change the way we think about our situation and change our actions and the way we process emotions, um, all of that leads to reversals, it seems to be likely that it, and the evidence suggesting that will lead to reversals of these epigenetic coding on stress and reward response genes that ultimately could be passed on over time. So again, this is not yet known for sure. I'm working with a number of folks to study this phenomenon, and we will have answers for you over the next few years as the results come back. Um, but I think that we do know that trauma does cause these changes, and we know that those changes can increase the risk of these mental illnesses. And so for us, it's about coming up with all the ways that we can to understand how to help people modify that, not feel stuck. So Dave, this is so fascinating, of course, um, to you and I both. And I want to get into the therapeutics and what we can do about it. But before that, I want to just fully understand. So it sounds to me like there's basically three potential ways that you can end up with, I'm just going to call it PTSD. Basically, it's this behavioral response that maybe doesn't fully serve you, doesn't serve us. And it one could be potentially like this inherited epigenetics. Another could be that you personally experience some degree of trauma, maybe early in life or at any point, I guess. And then third, I think I heard you say that you could learn this behavior. So maybe if like your mother was hypervigilant, it might not necessarily be in the epigenetics or in the DNA, but that just watching your mother be hypervigilant every day, you would learn to be hypervigilant yourself. Is that right? And is there any other way that we could end up in this sort of subpar like response pattern? So I think those three ways pretty much sum it up, and I think it's not just, I think the, the one step, it's, but I think it's very important to acknowledge that it's not typically just one of those three. It's usually a combination, and um, it's usually a combination of, to some extent, all of those things. Um, and in most people that we see, we don't live our lives in vacuums. We're constantly exposed to role models all the time, many of whom are not coping with stress on a, on a, in a healthy way. Um, I think we can all think of somebody or multiple people in our lives who had an influence on us growing up or even now where we look at that person as a role model, but they may not be the best at coping with stress in a healthy way. Um, society also does not necessarily encourage our society in, in Western society does not necessarily encourage the most or make available the most healthy coping strategies. Um, alcohol, as an example, um, is not a healthy coping strategy, but it's readily available to everyone. Same with cigarettes, same with prescription sedatives and, and narcotics and um, uh, stimulants, right? These numb us or distract us from the problem, but they don't actually solve the problem. It's kind of like putting a Band-Aid on a broken leg. The leg is still broken. It still becomes gangrenous and festers and eventually falls off if it is not managed. And it could kill you if you don't take care of it properly. But we still adopt that 
that um, methodology for treatment of these things in Western medicine when it comes to emotional and mental illnesses. So I think, yeah, the short answer to your question is yes, it is those three as the major source, but um, role models is particularly interesting because it's a broad category. So it could be, we think of role models as people who are right next to us in the immediate, um, like people who were having conversations with or our teachers or our families or siblings and things like that, friends. Um, we forget that TV radio and pop culture and all these things also influence us as role models our president is a role model right all of these people are role models so when they role model for us in a way that is not constructive or not consistent with a sustainable resilient lifestyle then and we take that heart and don't think process it as is this something i should be doing or not is this the right way to approach this or not um, and we don't and we don't question it and we just integrate it into our sense of self then that's when we start to integrate these tools that aren't necessarily serving us because they seem helpful in the moment, as you said earlier. And then the trick with psychotherapy, which is relevant to all of us, not just people who are mentally ill, but the whole point of psychotherapy in general and psychology is to take a step back for all of us and understand what are the things, the tools, the coping strategies that I've been doing up until now that have been serving me and which ones haven't been serving me. And then to take the ones that haven't been serving you, us and kind of understand why we can not attach to them anymore or detach from them. We don't need them anymore because we have now with all of our collective wisdom of all of these years and all this time, we can start to understand, hey, maybe there's something better that I could be doing to respond to this, which is different than what I learned when I was five, six, seven, ten 10 years old, et cetera. Absolutely. And also society, as you were describing these ways that we can be influenced, you know, we a lot of us walk around using busy as like a badge of honor, right? Like I'm busier than you, or I'm, I've got more hats that I'm wearing than you. Um, and it's almost this competition to be accomplishing more, to be doing more, and then we're rewarded for that. And that doesn't always serve us, right? But it's certainly the way things are set right. up. Now, we are recording this conversation in, example. in the, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I'm certainly influenced by that. Um, so we are recording this conversation in the context of the COVID crisis. So we are deep in the middle of it, mid-April, and um, a lot of us are stuck at home. Um, and so there's this conversation is just perfect for um, that context because there is so much stress, whether, it, you know, unfortunately, people are losing loved ones. Um, other people are experiencing the, the severe stress of being alone, but in a hospital, potentially on a ventilator, intubated, sedated, um, and not, right. be, not having their families uh, able to come in and check on them. Um, and then the majority of us are, are just stuck at home and have been affected potentially traumatically because of the loss of a job or the loss of meaning, the loss of being able to get out and see friends and family. So what I, I want to go deep into your expertise, which is what to do about this. And I believe that there is going to be a huge surge in, in people that have PTSD because of this crisis. Um, after crises like wars and things in the past, we know that this happens. Um, so and now here we are armed with more tools than we were after, say, Vietnam or World War II. So what what can we do? That's a great question. Um, again, I just want to start by saying that this is a time in history that we have not faced in a long time, particularly in the last, it seems like now 50, 70 years. This is pretty, pretty much unprecedented for us. And I think it is scary for everyone. Um, there's a lot of misinformation out there. There's a lot of 
poor reporting. Um, there's a lot of uh, stressful talk that is very threatening and scary, and scary for all of us. It's scary for us as health providers. Um, and I think one of the things that we're going to see is the threat is, as you said, the threat of things like this trauma um, affecting the way that we deliver healthcare. Um, one of the things that's very tricky for us as healthcare providers is that we have a duty to be on the front lines helping people. We have a duty to, in whatever way we can, provide our services to, to people who are suffering and ill. And at this point, a lot of my colleagues do not have adequate protective equipment. They do not have adequate safety guards for themselves to ensure that they can manage their stress responses and deliver care on a continuous basis to people without worrying about putting their own mental, physical, and emotional health in jeopardy. And I think we're starting to see that already, as you said, with the emotional health and the mental health where people are not sleeping as well, um, particularly healthcare providers, but I mean, all of us, right? Um, people who are um, we're not sleeping as well. We're not taking necessarily as good care of ourselves. Alcohol consumption is, is up. Um, drug consumption in a lot of places is up. Um, this is a problem. You know, this is the exact problem that in a lot of ways has led to the situation that we're in right now. And I think if we are not able to take a step back and, and recognize what has happened that has built up to this current situation we're in and not continue down that path, again, then we're, we're missing the boat here. Um, one example that I think is really important to talk about is this idea of heart rate variability, right? So heart rate variability is the rate of change of the heartbeat over time. And um, going back to what we were originally talking about when we first started this conversation about the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system, heart rate variability has really come to the forefront in the last, I'm going to say, 40 years as being the most important biomarker for tracking health and recovery on a regular basis. And not just health and recovery, but resilience. So what heart rate variability correlates with is having good resilience, good ability to bounce back from stress, meaning that when the stress or the threat is gone, our bodies very quickly decrease their heart rate, decrease their blood pressure, decrease their breath rate, decrease their sweat, and increase reproductive activity, increase digestion, rest, recovery, so that because we recognize that we're safe and we do that quickly because we recognize the threat's gone. And people who have PTSD, depression, anxiety, chronic pain, um, a number of other conditions, many of these folks, uh, ha it's now been well documented, these people have low heart rate variability and amongst the lowest that we see in clinical settings. And that is problematic because it, what it's showing us is, and it's also incredibly helpful as, as clinicians and also to help our patients because that's telling us that there's imbalance in the, in the sympathetic and parasympathetic system. People who have high stress response activity, their heart rate is up higher most of the time and their heart rate variability is lower most of the time. They respond to stress and they bounce back from stress more slowly and they are less likely to survive when they are threatened. The opposite is true for people who have high heart rate variability, people whose heart rate variability is in the 80s to 160s to 200s, which does happen, um, and people who are well-trained, and we don't know what the peak limit is, um, whereas people who have severe treatment-resistant mental illness or who are uh, chronically ill, these people tend to have heart rate variability in the 40s and below. And so what we're really starting to see is we can actually predict who is more likely to 
suffer the severe consequences of illnesses, who's more likely to be resilient. Now, what activities actually improve that, right? So um, meditation, mindfulness, yoga, deep breathing uh, and breath work, lots of different breath work techniques, soothing human touch or touch from a loved one or an animal, um, and um, doing things that generally take good care of our physical and mental and emotional health, all these things tend to improve heart rate variability. Exercise. Psychedelic medicines, exercise is a great one. Not also, however, not overtraining, not training to the point of exhaustion all the time, but training to the point where we, um, where is a healthy amount of training, which we is, you know, very personal to each person and identifying what level of training we need to reach so that we feel good, but we also feel rested the next day and we are not overdoing it because that increases our risk of injury. So obviously there are caveats to all these things and you can overdo anything. But the point is that if you're tracking heart rate variability, it's a really great way to understand how you can trend up and track your resilience, which we've never been able to do before. Um, so that's a really powerful tool. And so doing these kinds of activities at home is something that we really need to start focusing on right now. So if we drink, alcohol decreases heart rate variability, just sort of going back to what we were saying before. So there's a handful of things that people can be doing right now at home. And you specialize in heart rate variability, and you have some really unique interventions for that. So psychedelics and the, the Apollo um, device. And so I want to get deep into those. But before we go there, I just want to cover the basis of what people can be doing at home right now. So it sounds like some of these fundamental basics, like getting enough exercise, the right amount of exercise for you. I would imagine sleep. So getting enough rest and probably at the right times in the night going to bed before midnight that kind of thing um i'm curious if food if diet has any relationship with heart rate variability i'm not aware but I'm, sure. you are the expert in this so can you just talk through and certainly meditation yoga things that would be easy to do if you're trapped at home right now or and certainly if you're a healthcare provider thank you for acknowledging them the people on the front lines of this people that work in the grocery stores that are first responders people that are in those essential businesses thank you to every one of you. And um, hopefully some of these tools can be relevant, not only for those of us stuck at home, but for those of us who have even higher stress levels um, because of their, right. their proximity to this. So those things that are easy to do at home, can you just break them down? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then the other thing I'll say even leading into that is that when we talk about these activities that boost heart rate variability, the reason why these activities are important is because we have control over these activities. We can do them almost any time and they're free and they improve our sense of agency, autonomy, empowerment, our ability to control our lives and to feel in control of our lives. Why is that important? Well, that's important because one of the single biggest sources of anxiety in all of our lives is simply trying to control the things that we have no control over in our lives. So when you spend time thinking about all the things we try to wrap our arms around that we can't control, um, like the way other people drive or the way that somebody's talking to us or um, any number of other things, the way people, other people are acting, etc., cetera, um, thinking about all of those things literally is increasing our fight or flight response in our bodies. It's increasing our sense of anxiety and feeling overwhelmed. And that is Right. It's similarly decreasing our heart rate variability because our bodies don't know to not perceive that as threat. And so the reason why these techniques like breath work, which is one of the first ones I think most importantly to start with, the reason why breath work is so powerfully important to 
building our resilience and our recovery is because you can do it at any time and it's free. And it is it works on a very powerful subconscious level. So as we take a deep breath in, and we've all probably done this for the most part when we're stressed out or when we're not, is we take a moment and we sit and, and just try to focus on our breath and we take that breath into our bodies and then we let it out and then hopefully we repeat that a couple times. And what we find is that in the body, the response to breath is almost immediate. And the reason why it's almost immediate is because as the breath comes into our bodies and our minds start to pay attention to the feeling of air coming into our bodies, our bodies and our minds subconsciously, typically completely beneath our level of, of average awareness, says that if I have time to pay attention to my breath right now and the feeling of my breath right now, then I'm not running from a lion. I must be safe enough to be able to take the time out to pay attention to my breath. And it's the same when somebody you like touches you uh, in a nice way, or when you touch yourself, you know, putting pressure on your chest um, can increase parasympathetic activity as well and help improve recovery and sense of calm. Um, rubbing your hands in certain ways can do the same thing. And we talk about a lot of these techniques actually on the Apollo website, if anybody's interested. And um, but the point is that doing any of these things touch, breath work, self-touch or touch from a loved one, breath work, um, yoga, regular exercise, um, diet, and making sure that we're, we have all the nutritional things that we need to be able to feed our bodies good um, fuel, right? Nutrition is the fuel, so that's fundamental um, and important. And having also fuel that's healthy as much as possible, so avoiding things that have heavy levels of pesticides or herbicides or, you know, Potentially GMOs might be causing some of these issues for us. And so starting to try to have as much natural stuff coming into the body and the natural outlets for the body to get that restless energy out um, is critical because that reinforces through practice makes perfect, like we were talking about earlier through the Eric Kandel memory model, that training our bodies is like training our muscles in the gym to get stronger and it strengthens the neural connections not only between our brains and our muscles, but also between our brains and other parts of our brains, it helps make all of this easier. And it helps make us feel more in control all the time. Um, sleep, though, I want to end on because that is the single most important way to boost heart rate variability. And I don't think we found anything more important natural than sleep, because that's when we do most of our, our bodies do most of our recovery and our minds do most of our recovery and when we sleep. So we have to you know, focusing on getting good sleep is important and critically important to recovering. That said, if we don't feel safe, that's very difficult for us to allow ourselves to sleep. It's difficult for allow ourselves to heal. And so that's why the breath work comes back in full circle. If you're having trouble sleeping, we have breath techniques on our website. and Lots of other people talk about these. Apollo is another tool to help that can help ease the body by providing safety signals to the body through the skin or through breathing techniques or self-touch to help guide the body or nudge the body into a more safe state, which brings the mind along with it. And then that allows us to transition into more recovery states more quickly. So tell us about Apollo and the research that you've done. How does Apollo work? Um, and how do, have you determined that it does work? So originally we were, and, and I'm a psychiatrist and a neuroscientist, and I was working with a lot of people who have treatment-resistant post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, anxiety, and substance use disorders. And what I realized from working with my clients and also reading an enormous amount of literature on these topics was that 
overwhelmingly what we're seeing in the body is that our clients don't feel safe and their nervous systems show it. They show low heart rate variability as one sign of them not feeling safe. They show high resting heart rate. They sweat easily. They respond to stress um, when there's no stress around. All of these things are indicators that they don't feel safe. And so when do they actually get better? When do they feel better? Well, even people who are the most sick, the most treatment resistant, um, they, they feel better when somebody's having an empathic conversation with them and actually listening to them and looking at them in the eye and making them feel like they can talk about whatever it is that's on their mind in a non-judgmental accepting way. That is, for, that is how we as humans for free can provide safety to one another very quickly and it's extremely powerful. Um, soothing touch, hugs, holding hands, soothing music, all of these things are ways that we can rapidly convey a sense of safety to one another. But the problem is all of these things require somebody else to be there. And so, and, and so what we found was, and I'm also an MDMA trained psychotherapist and a ketamine trained psychotherapist. And these psychedelic medicines work in the same way that they have these incredibly powerful healing effects on people that can literally transform somebody in just a few sessions who's been ill for over a decade to somebody who is no longer having significant symptoms simply through accelerating this safety pathway we've been talking about. So having seen all those patterns, they said, all right, safety is critically important here. And it is rooted all the way down evolutionarily in our nervous systems into Eric Kendall's work and, um, and all these things that we've been talking about. And so I thought, well, would it be possible to figure out how the nervous system responds to safety signals from the environment, what it does to the body, what it does to change our heart rate and our breathing, which we found actually changes pretty reliably to a breath pattern of about five to seven breaths per minute. And this has been shown through biofeedback. And that's kind of like the signature that the body is starting to feel safe is when it enters this five to seven breaths per minute pattern. And then we said, okay, well, what if we activate the nervous system through the sense of touch, through the skin, could we induce the same state of a five to seven breaths per minute state in a person where their heart rate starts to come down, their breath rate starts to come down, even under very intense, stressful situations like, um, you know, intense computer tasks, math tasks, physical tasks, all these things. Can we show that the body's calming down and will that result in improved performance and how and improve the way that people feel? And so we did these studies at the University of Pittsburgh. We started with pilots, and then we expanded out into a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled crossover study, which was uh, wrapped up in uh, 2017. And we found that when we exposed people to these very specific patterns of sound that um, are basically bass frequencies that kind of feel like an ocean wave or a cat purring on your body or holding a loved one, that um, the body feels these patterns it recognizes the patterns without you having to do anything. It knows that it feel that these patterns indicate or are sending a signal that it's safe enough to calm down. And so in this study, we showed that within three minutes under stress, the first study in the cognitive task with three minutes under stress, um, we were able to improve cognitive performance up to 25%. And that improvement in cognitive performance correlated directly with in improvements in heart rate variability. And there's been never been a technology that has shown that you can improve heart rate variability within three minutes under stress ever, and that that directly correlates with academic or cognitive performance. And now we've actually had other groups show that this is actually reflective of enhanced physical performance as well. Um, 
So the more that we have been testing this, now we've tested it in thousands of people in the real world because we, what, you know, lab studies are great, but if you don't show it in the real world, then are you actually inducing a real benefit in people's lives? Um, and so we did, we've done the real world studies since then, a number of other clinical trials, and the results are continue, continuously consistent showing that people are improving their heart rate variability when they use Apollo, but they're also improving um, the way they feel. And they're improving the way that they sleep. And we see this tracked over time using wearable biometrics. And we see people who are very, very severely ill, people who have disorders that relate to low heart rate variability like PTSD, depression, anxiety. We see these people having dramatic benefit from Apollo where they say, I don't remember the last time I felt safe before I put this on. And they're able to sleep and they're able, and they're telling us that they're sleeping better and they're functioning better in their day-to-day lives and they're not requiring as much medicine, which is a huge goal for us because Apollo was originally, now we all use it. It's used by tons of people. Most people who use it aren't, aren't ill um, because it's an incredible tool for performance and for um, stress management resilience in general. But originally we developed this to treat people who had no other treatments available to them. Uh, kids, people with treatment-resistant mental illnesses, pregnant women, geriatric patients with um, very severe illnesses. So the fact that we're able to see this consistency across the board was extremely promising. And it's something very rarely seen in science. And I think it's really hopeful to us because it shows we did our homework right. You know, we really did a lot of research behind this before we invested our lives into it. And we found that without a doubt, we're on the right track. Is it perfect yet? No. But over time, now that we're on the right track, we know that as we continue to develop the technology and, and it will get better and better and better and and the results we're seeing are really, really incredible and humbling. So this is exciting. We can get a watch or did I understand correctly that um, we could also get a cat and that would make us yeah. smarter? <laughs> that, that was my big takeaway. I need a, I need a cat. Um, so, no, so, I'm yeah, just about, teasing. Yeah. So th- but this is phenomenally exciting, right? There's this quite simple way wearing this watch. And is, do you wear it 24 hours a day or just at night? Or, uh, it's changing sleep. It's changing cognitive function. So literally, you could be smarter if you feel like you're safer. And that makes a ton of sense, right? You just open up right. the bandwidth to take in information, to process information. Um, and then... So better sleep, better cognition, um, better resilience to anything that's going on, right, to to any stressor. So hugely, hugely helpful. Um, Describe the process. So is this cumbersome? Is it heavy? Is it like what is it expensive? What is what's the process of doing this? So I can show you. So, yeah, I think the, the, the core is safety, right? So if, if having a cat with you all the time makes you feel safe, then that's great. But that's just not a solution that everybody has available <laughs> to them, right? And it comes um, with a litter with box. Ha- right, right. Yeah, and, and all of these things. And, and the same, you know, and a lot of people, what we see the most common way that's similar to this is music. People have music with them. They listen to headphones all the time. That music keeps them calm. It keeps them in the zone in what we call flow. Um, but we can't listen to music when we're having a conversation with somebody else, right? We can't listen to music when we're giving a talk on stage or we're performing surgery or whatever it may be. So, um, so that's, so Apollo is really our way of providing some, a tool that doesn't require you to do anything else and kind of wear it in the background. So I have one on here right now. I wear it most of the time, um, on my ankle actually, but, uh, people wear it on their wrist or their ankle, it's completely optional. There's two There's two buttons, I think you could see right here, um, that can increase or decrease the intensity and can also turn off 
or on the vibration patterns without you having to go back to your phone. So it's an, it's a technology that can work completely independently of your smartphone, um, but your smartphone can be used to track data and also to um, and also to change settings uh, in, and, and set up more interesting, more complicated patterns and things like that over time. Um, ultimately, it is very simple to use. You, it, we have seven settings and in the app, and um, the settings range from uh, energy and wake up, which is the most stimulating, and that people commonly use in place of coffee or energy drinks. Um, and it feels a lot like caffeine. And then we have social and open, which a lot of people say actually feels kind of like MDMA, um, which is just this very safe, socially friendly, open, not in your own head, not judging yourself when you're engaging with others. Um, a very nice, clear energy um, that's very friendly and social. Then there's clear and focused, which is more like amphetamines or stimulants. It's like a deep, intense focus. Um, and we really designed these to kind of be, feel like medicines that we know because if you can make them feel something that's familiar then people uh get them more easily and so those are the most wakeful settings and then there's the recover frequency rebuild and recover which is kind of in the middle this frequency is great for immediately post physical or mental stress it just helps the heart rate come down quickly helps the blood pressure come down quickly the breathing rate come down quickly and just helps us come back to homeostasis and balance more quickly after a stressor happens and then there's the much more calming settings which are more in the used in the end of the day so the ones used in the end of the day for most people are or around the evening nighttime are meditation and mindfulness which is great for winding down um and or what we call calm flow um and that's one of my favorites then there's relax and recharge which is deep relaxation bordering on sleepiness um and so a lot of people say that kind of feels like cannabis indica um and then there's um sleep and renew which is what it says which is just helping you you know, decrease the time it takes you to fall asleep when you get into bed and just rapidly accelerate your ability to enter a restful, calm, sleepy state. And we've seen a lot of people in, in the wild um, send us back their data showing that they're uh, within just a week or two of using Apollo, they're having great improvements to their REM sleep amount that they're getting, their deep sleep that they're getting, um, and their HRV over time as they sleep, which is really um, promising. So I can think of a handful of patients that could really benefit from this, uh, maybe every single one of them. Um, so it's a wearable device. And what's different about Apollo, to me, it sounds like versus an Apple Watch or even any sort of like Fitbit, that's just collecting information and then giving you back the data in a, in a way that's easy to see. But what Apollo is doing is it's actually used, there's an input. So your body is getting data from the device or, or information from the device. And can how does that come? Is it like in frequencies? Is it is it electrical? Like what is it that's going into our bodies? And is there a side effect? So you talked about comparing it to a lot of different um, substances like MD, MDMA or cannabis or um, some of the amphetamines. So are there side effects to what Apollo is putting into us? That's a great question. Um, and so uh, and I apologize if I didn't mention it earlier. Apollo is side effect free. Um, we designed it to, I'm an addiction psychiatrist. Um, it's most of my work. So we designed it to be not addictive not and not um, have any contraindications. And so all the frequency settings that we use are frequencies that have been studied in the literature. And at the intensity levels that we use, they've never been found to have any side effects in, in people. So um, which is just great. And that's been a huge, huge success for us. And so the other side of it is that what do they feel like is they feel like 
it's sound waves. So if, if you've ever stood next to a subwoofer or been to a live concert, um, sometimes you, you know, we are frequently used to hearing sound and hearing music that makes us feel differently, but you don't have to actually hear music for it to change the way you feel. You actually just have to feel it. And our skin is a listening organ, just like the ears. So what we're actually doing, and I think the best way to describe it for people who haven't tried before is we are through based on the neuroscience of music and neuroscience of touch and the neuroscience of the way the body enters meditative states and enters recovery states and manages stress states, we have developed and basically songs that I compose using vibration that are bass frequencies of music. They're like subwoofer range frequencies of music that are songs that I compose for your skin as a listening organ rather than your ears. Fascinating. This is a really, really unique offering. Um, Another unique thing that you describe a lot um, is psychedelics. And you're a psychiatrist, so you're very familiar with substances and the effect that they have on our brain. Psychedelics are really in a class of their own. So can you describe why and how that connects with this theory of safety being so important in our ability to change heart rate variability and be resilient? Yeah, so psychedelics are in a class of their own, that's for sure. Um, Part of the reason why psychedelic medicine or psychedelic substances are in this class is um, because they have a different path of treatment than what we can refer to as maybe standard Western treatment options. So uh, when we think of standard Western medicine treatment options, and let's just focus on mental illness for now, Um, just to make it simple, the way that we are taught and the way that we prescribe medicine, as many people are familiar as psychiatrists, is we typically prescribe one or multiple medicines to be taken one or multiple times a day, every day, for an ongoing or indefinite period of time. And we're told to actually tell the patient or our client the statistics, which is that if if this medicine helps you and you discontinue use, you are likely to have a relapse. And then you are more likely to have more relapses every time you relapse. And that is not a hopeful story, as you can imagine. Um, the in, in the in, in what, what we really see, unfortunately, is that that story that we're telling people in a lot of ways fosters what we call chemical dependence, which is really what we're trying to avoid in a lot of cases in the first place. Um, and so what is interesting to me the most about psychedelic medicines and sort of why what what really makes them different why are they actually in a class of their own that is really makes them worth investigating further is that these medicines work in one to three to six doses they don't require daily dosing and they don't require you to take one or multiple medicines one or multiple times a day to get benefit consistently they actually work on the opposite way they you you take one or three or six or ten doses over the course of a couple years and then these dosing experiences combined with an intensive psychotherapy typically um, is is very important this the psychotherapy before and after that helps guide a person about how to learn from their psychedelic experience the their idea of experience. set and setting right and and that set and setting is really where the safety comes in right the psychedelic medicines are fantastic but they are equally as likely to traumatize somebody as they are to heal somebody if they're used in an unsafe way and i think a lot of people don't recognize that risk and then that puts them inherently at risk 
So if we if we recognize that psychedelic medicines are incredible, incredibly powerful, and they have the power to do as much harm as they do good, then it reminds us to constantly focus on using them in a safe and respectful way, and to really be mindful of set and setting before we go into these experiences. And intention, right? The intention that we bring into the experience. What do we intend to get out of this experience? Are we intending to use this psilocybin mushroom or this MDMA as an escape from my reality? which is not necessarily ever the best way to use these medicines, or am I using intentionally this medicine to help me figure out something about my life that I can do better, Maybe, right? Like not change your reality. Ex exactly. Or, or change your, the way that we see Your perception our of your reality, right. 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 So there's a handful of psychedelics out there, right? We talked, you've mentioned MDMA and ketamine, psilocybin, ayahuasca. I mean, the list goes on and on. Um, are there, in your clinical experience, do you have favorites or do you have ones that tend to come up for different circumstances, maybe addiction versus PTSD versus, uh, you know, the whole ho depression? Sure. Well, um, I think right now we're a little bit limited legally um in this situation so what my favorites might be based on the science of how these medicines work and the way what i've seen in the clinical trials is not necessarily consistent with what we're able to offer clients um because legally these medicines are still not um scheduled in a way by the dea that is conducive to us being able to use them um use them in the way that we would like to so for instance mdma uh, and psilocybin are incredibly powerful medicines. In some places, MDMA is now decriminalized, but uh, it is technically still a DEA Schedule One drug. So as a physician who's licensed by the federal government, by these federal boards that be, I am unable to provide MDMA and psilocybin treatment outside of a clinical trial. So it makes it a little bit tricky. Um, but they're incredibly powerful, and there are clinical trials available to access these medicines. Um, I would say that the medicine of choice right now um, is ketamine. And the reason is because ketamine is legal in almost every state. Uh, the total experience for ketamine only lasts about 30 to 60 minutes of the actual peak altered state experience. And then there's some afterward time for recovery. But in general, you can pretty much wrap up one, in one ketamine therapeutic encounter within two to three hours, whereas psilocybin and MDMA could take eight to 10 hours, and sometimes people have to sleep over overnight. So that increases the amount of de de demand on the care provider, the demand on um, the whole clinical experience becomes more complicated and more expensive. To give you an idea, um, we can do a ketamine treatment course for something like, I don't know, $3,000 in somebody, maybe a little more, depending on how complex it is and how many sessions are required. Um, but MDMA is closer to $14,000. So just in terms of the amount of time and the access, and MDMA is also not yet reimbursed by insurance. Ketamine is um, to some extent. So there are ways to that we can provide these services now. Um, ketamine is an incredible medicine, and it's been around for a long time. It's been studied for a long time in this way. Um, one of the founders of ketamine-assisted psychotherapy is Dr. Phil Wolfson, for anybody who wants to look him up. And he's worked with MAPS for a very long time, and he also helped co-author the MDMA-assisted psychotherapy protocol. So they're very similar. Um, and it's an incredible treatment that is actually, interestingly enough, which you may not know about, and I'm sure many of your listeners may not know about, ketamine is going to be offered very shortly 
uh, if not already, at the launch of this podcast, via telepsych, telemedicine. So that means that if you are in a state where a pharmacy will synthesize a oral ketamine formulation, which we can make, we can write for to that pharmacy, then we can walk you through ketamine-assisted psychotherapy experiences for trauma and depression at home. Wow. And this is going to be something that is going to you know, revolutionize the way that we provide care to people, particularly at a time like this where um, you know, there's a lot more trauma going around. Wow. Yeah. That, that may be one of the more transformational things that comes out of this is, is how medicine is changing, how we deliver medicine is changing is with this mm -hmm. just necessity, uh, with it being necessary to not be in the same room and share germs. So what are the potentials um, for, for getting access to people um, who aren't in the same room with you? And I didn't even realize that you could do oral ketamine. I thought all of it was IM or IV. So yeah, this mm -hmm. is definitely news. Now, is there potential risk that goes up because I guess this whole idea of safety um, we've all seen a movie or something where there's you know a bad trip um, and this idea of safety is so integral to what you're describing so not being in the same room with someone who is experiencing ketamine does that make it less safe so I think that it's it's ideal that we are together physically during the experience because these especially if somebody has never had one of these experiences before they can be really powerful and really um, new unfamiliar right mm -hmm. and I think that un that lack of familiarity can be scary for people um, that said I can tell you that having worked with uh, a lot of clinicians who have done, done this for a while, Phil being one of the, the main one, main folks who is extraordinarily experienced in this area. Um, and, uh, we've, I mean, they've come up with some incredible tools to, to manage that issue and to make people feel safe at home. And at first, I will admit that I was skeptical about what that would be like but I, and, and how well that would work. But I think that what's interesting about all this is, is really getting down to the core of why do we do psychotherapy? Why, why does psychotherapy benefit us? And why should we all do it? Not just those of us who are ill, but why would psychotherapy benefit all of us? It benefits us because it empowers us to heal, right? It empowers us to allow and the parts of ourselves that are capable of healing ourselves without anyone around to turn back on and for us to have belief in ourselves restored that we have the ability to do some things to be in control of some things to heal ourselves or at least kick start that process and so one of the things that's really interesting that's coming out of tele uh tele work or remote psychedelic work is that we are empowering people to understand that they can do some of this stuff on their own more effectively and maintain and establish their own safety more effectively from the comfort of their home. And they don't have to come to an office. They don't have to rely on us for that safety. We can still help guide through the, through Zoom, through, you know, through these uh, video conference apps. And at the same time, we guide them towards their own empowerment. Right, because if we can't make change in people's lives, it's one of the oldest teachings in psychology and psychiatry. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Right? Mm -hmm. We can't force people to change. And so, but if I if I can empower somebody to change, if I can help them understand why they want to make a difference in their lives, and the, and then the core skill sets that they have already that they can use to do that, then 
it becomes an incredibly powerful healing experience and we can mitigate any almost any risk to the point where it's no it's basically no more risky to do it at home with us on camera as it is to do it with us in person right. um, and we also all and we always start with the doses very low to start yeah and it Dose doesn't have the risk of these like long-term interventions like the benzos and and right. amphetamines and uh antidepressants or, or the side effects so with um with the psychedelics a lot of times what we're doing as i understand it is when you lead a person through a journey, there is this invitation to sort of lean into some of the traumatic experiences of their life and and kind of almost relive them so that they can reprocess and, and create a new perception of that. Um, and so it is quite scary. There is a lot of fear of, of that, right? Leaning into what does this have to teach me versus that habitual, like this is totally threatening. So can you talk through some of your clinical experience of that and what that might look like for someone? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that's something that a lot of us are often afraid of, not just those of us who have an illness, but, you know, a lot of us are sometimes um, afraid of going deep into ourselves and thinking about our vulnerabilities and our weaknesses and things we've done wrong or bad things that have happened to us. Um, and I think that that is really at the core of the work we're trying to do with people. I was just talking to a colleague about this the other day, uh, who's a nurse who has been working in sexual health for a very long time, and she has an incredible heart, and she's just incredible with her patients. And just talking about the idea of what is the service we're really providing people? And that that service, when we're as caregivers, what we're providing people is the space that's safe enough for them to feel non-judged and accepted and listened to in a way that allows them to just feel comfortable opening, starting to open up with their own vulnerability, right? Starting to be able to just see eye to eye with the parts of us that are vulnerable or that feel vulnerable, that feel uncomfortable, that feel weak or that feel shameful and allowing that those to come to the surface so that they can be worked with in a way that maybe we haven't thought about working with them ever, or maybe we thought about it years ago, but then kind of swept it under the rug because it wasn't the right time. And I think that part of the reason why, the reason why this is all important to talk about is because part of the reason why people have bad experiences sometimes with psychedelic medicines is that they use it. And that psychedelic medicine in the environment at one point helps them facilitate a feeling of safety to the point where it allows some of the stuff to come up but then they are not ready for that stuff to come up when it does come up. And so they don't know what to do with it. They don't have the support. And then in a lot of cases I, that I've seen, people end up re-traumatizing themselves again, which mm -hmm. defeats the whole purpose of that experience. Whereas what we're doing is we prepare the person in advance, um, usually with at least one session, if not a several, um, where the person is adequately prepared and feels ready to tackle whatever it is that might come up. Um, not in a tackle like I'm going to destroy this part of myself way or I'm, it's a war. It's not a war. It's that whenever, whatever comes up, they're ready to work with it gratefully, compassionately, accepting, non-judging the same things that we instill in our patients in this therapy experience and helps them trust us is about helping them understand that they can trust themselves again enough to allow some of these parts of ourselves that were uncomfortable come to the surface so that they can be reworked and, and, and really just re-understood 
from a standpoint of safety right now, not a standpoint of fear when it happened in the past. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's so powerful. So, so powerful. Um, Really transformative. Now, are there ways to do this without psychedelics? So psychedelics, I think of them as sort of a catalyst. It's maybe a way to get there faster. Um, But what are things? Great. Yeah. What are other things that people can do to get the benefits of, of this sort of approach without the, the substance? So first off, I'll just say that um, in case it wasn't clear earlier, all of the, the tools that we're talking about are catalyzed by psychedelic medicine um, when they're used in the right way. But ultimately, all of these tools, all of these strategies that we're talking about, I are tools that myself and my colleagues use in our therapy sessions without medicine on a regular basis. So all of this radical non-judgment, radical self-acceptance, radical acceptance of others, um, empathic listening tools, um, all the thing, those things that we use to help our clients feel safe in the office or wherever they are with us, or whether it's on over Zoom or Skype or, or you know whatever it may be, those tools are being used and should be re- relied on and practiced as a priority regardless of whether a psychedelic medicine is in play or not. If a psychedelic medicine is in play, it's even more important to prioritize all of those things because people are in an altered state where you don't necessarily know what's going to come up in advance. Usually we have idea, but you just don't know for sure. And oftentimes they don't even know what's going to come up. Uh, and so for us, uh, it's critical to do that. I think the main thing is really just tying it together with safety practice, right? It's that one of the things that we can do for each other right now is that we can provide empathic listening. We can provide soothing, non-sexual, intimate touch with one another and to ourselves right now. And we deserve it. We can be grateful for our breath and our ability to breathe right now, which brings us back into our bodies, back into the present moment. All of these techniques are focused on enhancing mindfulness, which is really about being present in the moment with whatever it is we're doing right now. And all of those things are safety-based techniques. So if we have people, and it starts with us, you know, if we have people that we are close to that are struggling, being there for them as a listener, not waiting to speak, but just being there as a listener, making eye contact and really, you know, showing that person that you're really listening to what they're saying and you don't care about what you, you're not thinking about what you have to say next. It's really just about being with them and holding that space. That is one of the most therapeutic things that we can do for each other on any base, on any basis that facilitates healing. Um, and again, that in combination with intimate non-sexual touch in with intimate self touch, um, you know, we have a, we have a little spot on the inside of our ear right here that you probably can't see because you can't see the video that I'm on. Um, but there's a little spot on the inside of the outer ear that can be uh, pressed that actually increases parasympathetic tone. And so all of these different strategies are ways for us to really just improve our sense of safety, which just allows that parasympathetic recovery healing response that's in all of us to turn back on. And we all have the ability to do that at any time. So the more we practice those techniques, the easier it gets to be able to do that. And that's really what Apollo is, is Apollo, we understand how hard these techniques are to practice, right? Psychedelics are great. They're hard to access. They can be expensive. Deep breathing and meditation can take thousands of hours to become good at. But 
if you can put on something like Apollo, then you can have something that can get you into that mind state right away or almost right away that helps remind the body that we're capable of feeling that way. We're capable of feeling safe in these situations. And then when we realize that we're capable of feeling safe, we actually naturally start to try to achieve that on our own. And so there's no dependency with the device. The device is more like, it's almost like training wheels for resiliency that over time it helps us just get better and better and stronger um, as we use it. That's fantastic. So if somebody wants to purchase Apollo or learn more about it, um, can, what's the website? So the website's apolloneuro.com. It's A-P-O-L-L-O-N-E-U-R-O.com. And you can also go to apolloneuroscience.com and you will find us. We have lots of articles about the technology, our, our studies that are ongoing and upcoming, um, and lots of information about not just the technology, but also how to understand how to improve your resilience for free um, with sleep techniques and breathing techniques as well, um, which I think are so, so important and, um, you know, really the foundation of all of this work. Um, And if you also want to reach out to me, um, you could check me out at Dave Rabin on Twitter or at Dr. David Rabin on Instagram um, and Apollo's on there too. And I'm happy to, you know, stay in contact and answer any questions that you have. And my website for my clinical practice is drdave.io. Great. And are you still uh, taking clients? I am. Oh, fantastic. And where are you located? Um, I'm located in California. I practice in Pennsylvania and California. But um, at this point, I believe, given the COVID situation, that um, a lot of restrictions are being lifted by states that allow doctors to provide care outside of their state of current licensure. So that will be evaluated over time. But at this point, it looks like we're going to be able to provide care to not just people in California or in Pennsylvania. Um, so hopefully we'll be the access to ca- this kind of care will get better and better. And we have a lot of colleagues around the country who are working with us to help improve that as well. Great. So there's some, some gifts coming out of this crazy crisis situation. Dave, thank you so much for your time today and for sharing these insights with us. It's been a really pleasure having you today Um, and such valuable information, especially considering the current crisis we are all facing as a a planet, right? Everyone in the world, no one is is escaping being touched by this at some level. So thank you for sharing these very hopeful nuggets about how we can um, really benefit um, from these tools that we have at our disposal. Um, so thank you thank you it's been an absolute pleasure it's my pleasure thank you so much Heather I really appreciate it thank you for being with us for this conversation with Dr. Dave Robin if you didn't know already one of the other things we do in the collective is create supplements for better cognition better aging and more energy if you're looking for any or all of that go to neurohacker.com to learn more And as our gift to you, we're offering an additional 15% off your first order using the code PODCAST68. If you have any questions about this content, please leave them on our site at neurohacker.com slash podcast, and we'll work to get those answered on a future episode. Make sure to go leave us a five-star review and subscribe to our podcast. We'll see you next time.